Well, today we're coming as we go through a series in the book of Ezekiel to a very interesting passage. It's a passage that challenges and challenged the people of Israel because they had gotten some wrong assumptions. They had gotten some wrong ideas. But the Lord was going to correct some things, and through it, He's got some things to teach us. So would you pray with me? And just, I mean, you just in your heart, say to God, God, what have you got to say for me, for my life, for my family? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love, for the salvation, true salvation, we have in your son, Jesus. Speak to your people today. Teach us from your word. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today, have you, I will ask this question at the very beginning. Have you ever heard of a concept of generational sin or generational curses? This is something that, like, within Christian subcultures, some churches will teach a lot about generational sin. or gener- like, like, it passes from generation to generation. It's kind of a confusing idea. And i got to be honest, I think it's got some misconceptions that are out there. But it comes from the book of Exodus. It comes from a moment when we see Moses, that prophet of God, who was leading the people of Israel out of slavery into the new promised land. This Moses and got to see God, well, sort of as close as you get to see God. And he was up on a mountain and God sort of moved across the place and, and kind of covered Moses, uh, with the, it says, with his hand. And sort of shielded Moses, but God, Moses got to see a glimpse of God's glory. And look at Ezekiel chapter 34. Look at this verse. It says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And here it comes. Maintaining to thousands that love and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. That's the part of the Lord we want to hear. God is merciful. He's compassionate. He is one that forgives sins. And He's abounding and gracious. I hope you know that the Lord loves you. I hope you know that this is true. But in this passage comes the next verse. And it's the one that makes me scratch my head a little bit. You ready? Yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He, God, punishes the children and their children. For the sin of parents to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. Anybody thinking, um, wait, what's, wait, that's not the God I thought, what, what, wait, wait. I don't know if that sounds right. <clears throat> so if my dad did bad in school, does that mean I get bad grades? <laughs> now, of course, my parents did well. Okay, I might have actually taken my parents' grades. They did pretty well. Um, but wait, if, if my great-grandfather messed up on something and sinned again? Does that mean it impacts me? Do I get judged for that or held accountable? That, 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 that doesn't quite seem fair. That doesn't seem just. And we know from Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, it says God is just. First John, it says God is loving. But in 2 Thessalonians 1, it says God is just. So this doesn't seem fair to me. This doesn't seem just. Well, let me give you two misconceptions. I think these are flat out wrong. All the way through the scripture, I think these are wrong. One misconception, one wrong idea would be that God is somehow holding me accountable for the sins of others. 
that somehow I have to pay for that. Or, or that Jesus has to, when I'm asking forgiveness, I'm asking forgiveness for, for somebody else. That somehow I'm accountable for the sins of others. I think that is a misconception and a misread of that passage. Number two, some people sort of see it as this way, sort of a fatalistic thing. I think this is flat out wrong to say, oh, I'm doomed to repeat the sins of my ancestors. I think that is a misconception from that verse. And in fact, I think actually we need to flip it around and see, well, then what in the world would our God mean? I mean, this is when he's revealing his nature to Moses and he's just and compassionate. I'm so sorry. That he is just and compassionate and he is forgiving and he is abundantly showing mercy. How in the world would it say that he punishes sins to a fourth generation? Well, number one, I think that it raises this question if God is being fair. And here's how I think scripture answers it. One, I think the Lord was actually pointing out that there is lasting harm often caused by past behavior. Whether that's family behavior, or whether that's a nation's behavior, or whether that... There are things that get passed down. Not because God is holding us necessarily like, oh, well, he sinned, so I'm going to punish you. It's not that. But we need to realize that our actions impact perhaps our children, our grandchildren, maybe our great-grandchildren. That sins in our nation... I mean, let's just be honest here. Slavery was a great, just black mark, a horrible mark, a a big red pen, got to get this out kind of mark. This is a horror of America in the past. And that racism continued to impact, right, generations and still today. There are things that are consequences of what we do. I remember having a professor who, um, one of the other students in the class, we were a very small cohort of students, and we'd gotten fairly close because we did all of our classes together and all of these things and had a fairly good relationship. And the professor was telling us about, um, and and the student, and they were kind of like sharing a little bit to the whole class, kind of on a topic like this, and how he... Uh, was able to spot <clears throat> the fact that this other student was a child of an alcoholic because he was a child of an alcoholic. And there were just certain behavioral characteristics, that idea of covering, that always trying to make sure everything's okay and everybody else is okay. These things impact lives. Our sin, the things we do wrong, <clears throat> can, be, can impact and really cause difficulties in others. Number two, this idea of some kind of a generational sin or generational... Oh, oh yeah, I want to give a statement. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's one. Do you guys remember the story of Abraham? Now, Abraham was this first man called out to follow the Lord, uh, called out from Ur of the Chaldeans, called out to go to this new promised land, and God promised that the world would be blessed through him, blessed through him because of his faith and his faithfulness. But, you know, he didn't always do right. And when he and Sarah could not have a child, even though God promised they would eventually have one, and they did, God was faithful, he and Sarah had the idea of, well, we'll have another child by the handmaiden. We'll have Sarah's servant kind of be a surrogate mom. for, And all of a sudden, 
Now God does keep his promise, and there's two children. Well, Sarah, the wife, wasn't too happy about there being two sons. And she was very much, Abraham, you're going to have to play favorites here. My son's the real son. Send that other mother, send that other child away. Favoritism, right? In a very pronounced way. Well, that son of Abraham, Isaac, the one that didn't get sent away, he had twin boys. One was very outdoors and woodsman-like. Isaac kind of liked him the best. And Jacob, he kind of liked cooking and liked things around the household. And his mother liked him the best. Favoritism. It caused a rift between those brothers. That favoritism that we first see in Abraham's family, wow, it seems to be a pattern of behavior in Isaac's family. We can see in other examples too. But Isaac, who uh, the son that sort of was the one promised, uh, the one Jacob, uh, who ended up having 12 children, well, he had a favored wife, and when she had a son, he was the favored son. When all the other sons were out, sent out to take care of the sheep, Joseph was given a special coat. It was made the supervisor, even though he was the youngest, well, or one of the youngest. What was going on? Favoritism was having an impact generations down copying some behavior. So I think we need to be warned that it's not as if God is holding us accountable for somebody else's sin, but our sin can often be passed down. If we are all about career and money and job, then maybe we pass down a passion for career and money and job. If we are all about serving God, maybe we're passing down a blessing of other people wanting to serve God. Some of you have figured out that I might have overcommitted this semester uh, in my workload. Some of you are starting to figure that out, that I am sometimes on that workaholic end of things. I grew up with a dad who always had at least two jobs. At least. I remember time after time that my friend would pick me up and go to the soccer game on Saturday. My dad would be there, sometimes by halftime, because he was at the church doing some things that had to get done for Sunday. And on Saturday, he'd swing by, and he'd be there for at least at least part of the second half. But then he had to run and go do visitation or something like that. I can, my dad was always doing those things. Am I bitter? No. No, I, he instilled in me a love for God's kingdom and a love for God's work. I wonder if part of the reason I'm always trying to work so hard. Is it something we pass down? We need to be careful about what we're passing down. We need to be careful that we're passing down a love for God. We need to be careful that we're modeling repentance. And And you're like, well, man, I have already messed that up, Pastor Mike. Oh, my goodness, I have passed so many things down. We all have. But you know what we can also pass down? Getting our lives right with God. We can also pass down a, a sincerity. You know, my mom got dropped off to church every week. Her parents didn't go. They threw big parties at their house. The house was only two dollars down. And so they just let my, my mom go every week. My mom started taking her brothers. My mom became a Christian. Her, the children became a Christian. And they began to influence their parents. And my grandparents ended up becoming great people of faith. Not because they passed it down, but my parent, my, but the children passed it up. They, but my grandparents modeled repentance and turning to the Lord with their lives. What legacy are we leaving? 
Well, the second mistake I think we can really, or, or not the mistake, but the second reason I think we can understand God is fair, even though he says that he punishes these sins, generation, is I think he is also rooting out entrenched cultural practices. This is what we see in the time of Ezekiel, that when the, the people began to do idol, idol worship and worship other gods, it impacted generations. They, they led people astray and denied them the teaching of the Scripture. It impacted generations. And there were practices that became so ingrained, addictions in their life, addictions in their life, that they had to be broken and that God would send them into exile. This one was going to last 70 years. That's three generations, at least. The punishment that went down. It wasn't that they were guilty for the sins of their fathers, but the thing is they couldn't stop doing the same things with their fathers unless God did some things to, to break that sin. After those 70 years, the people of Israel and the people of Judah, they came back, never went back to idol worship. That was it. God fixed it. But it took several generations. This brings us to a passage in Ezekiel 18. Because you're saying, uh, I thought we were doing a series on Ezekiel, uh, Pastor Mike. This seems like we're talking about Exodus. Um, <clears throat> l- l- let's look at Ezekiel chapter 18. These things that happened began to make the people feel like they were fatalistic. Like, like they were doomed to repeat those sins of the fathers. Or they were being held accountable for the sins of their fathers. fathers. But look at Ezekiel chapter 18. It says, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, and God saying, What do the people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see what that proverb's saying? We're being held accountable for what my parents did. They're the ones that misspent the money. They're the ones that denied the Lord, and we're receiving the punishment. They're the ones that did idol worship, and now we're the ones you know, uh, reaping harvest. They're the ones that were worshiping Baal and doing all the sexual immorality that we talked about last week. They're, and we are the ones, our teeth are the ones set on edge. We're the ones that are sort of reaping the benefit. They were complaining. Why is this happening to us? Verse 3. Well, as surely as the Lord lives, declares the Lord. You will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. I'm putting an end to it. For everyone belongs to me. This is God speaking. The parent as well as the child. Both along, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. All right. God then gives an interesting example to this. Um, he says, look, I'm not going to hold... It's not the child that's held accountable. Each one will kind of deal with their own sin. He gives the example of this righteous man. He says, suppose there is a righteous man who does what is right and what is just. Now, I'm not going to read all of this, but here's how it goes. Well, I'm going to read it, but you don't have to read it on the screen. He goes on to say it this way. He does not eat at those mountain shrines or look at those idols. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but he returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery. He does not. He gives his food to the hungry. He provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong, and he judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my law. That man is righteous, it says in verse 9, and he will surely live. Got it? The righteous man? But then he has a son. 
verse 19. Verse 10. Suppose he has a violent son. Flip to that next slide. Suppose he has a violent son. And then he goes through the whole litany again. He eats at the temple shrines. He oppresses the poor and the needy. He commits robbery. He doesn't return what he took in pledge. He looks to idols. He does detestable things. Will such a man live? He will not. And then number three. But suppose that wicked man has a son. He does not do such things. He doesn't eat at the mountain shrines. He doesn't look to the idols. He doesn't defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone. He doesn't require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery. But he gives his food to the hungry and provides clothes for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and he takes no interest or profit for them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He does not do such things. What do we learn from this little example? It seems like God is kind of extensive, right? There's a son, there's a father, and he is righteous, but the son is wicked. But then the, the next, his son, the grandson, evaluates and kind of does what's right. What do we need to learn from this? Well, number one, I think we realize in this passage, it's very clear, that each of us is accountable to God. Each one of us is accountable to God. Look at this passage uh, in Ezekiel 18, verse 20, it says, The one who sins is the one who will die. Every one of us will stand before, one, before God one day. In Christian theology, it's called soul competency. You and you alone are accountable for what you have done and not done. All of us have our own lives that we've made our choices. No matter what someone who has done before uh, has done, no matter what society has done, we ultimately have to uh, make our own choices. Right now, it's so easy. And we won't always want to say right now, but it's an always thing. You know what I'm talking about? The blaming, blaming somebody else, blaming society, blaming culture, blaming the professor. Don't tell anybody. I got my first complaint. Six years. I got my first complaint. The class is too hard. The class isn't too hard. (laughs) I, I look back and, oh, you didn't come to class for four out of six times. Yep, the test was hard for you. Oh, did you study the videos I gave you? Did you study? Okay, now do you hear bitterness? Mm hmm, it's there. And the class was not too hard. There's soul competency in my class, too. you got to answer for the fact that whether you did the assignment or you didn't do the assignment. If you didn't do the assignment, it's a zero. If you didn't answer the essay question, it's a zero. If you didn't answer the correct, I mean, it's multiple choice. Even if you didn't guess right, it's wrong. I, it's soul competency. I had one student, on, when they got the test back, I told him, hey, it didn't go well. He's like, do we get an opportunity to argue with you about the th-? Yeah, you can argue with me. It's still a zero. You're not, it doesn't matter. You're going to stand before the judge, and it's me in that class, and it's going to be wrong. If it is wrong, it is wrong. And it's on you. It is your choice. It was what you did. You chose not to study. You didn't get the grade. You chose not to watch the videos. You get the grade. You chose not to look at the review guide. Because sometimes you, when they pick the answer that's not on the review guide, that's a bad strategy. Boy, I don't know the answer. I'll you look at the word I've never heard before. That's the wrong choice every time. At least pick one of the people that you've heard before, right? I'm bitter. I'm bitter. God is a little bit angry here. 
I mean, he's a little bit expressing this. Look, no, the one who commits the sin is going to die. It's not that you're, you can't go blaming everything on a generational curse or some kind of consequence. They're there, but he said everyone's held accountable for their own sin. Number two, each of us must evaluate the practices that influence us. And quite honestly, that if we're repeating or influencing others, for bad, there's also, if it's good, it's good, right? Uh, but we all need to evaluate the practices that influence us. Are the things that surround us in our culture, or the things that surround us in our job and workplace, or the things that surround us even in our family behaviors, if they're not good, they're not good. And we need to cut those things out. Look how it says it in Scripture. Back at the verse 20 in Ezekiel 18, it says, The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. We saw the example that he gave. The, 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 the grandson in the, in the little example evaluated the, the misdeeds of the father and chose something different. We each need to evaluate those influences, and if they are negative ones, we can say, no, this is not good. Some of you that are my age, um, we reap the benefit of the benefit of those that went through the Great Depression. My grandparents did. My grandfather spent no money, exactly none. I don't think ever. And in fact, when people, when I, I remember uh, one time in his life, he took me upstairs and said, people give me these really nice shirts. Can you use these? I've never worn He wore the same old shirt for the entire time I knew him. He spent no money. <laughs> he just, I mean, it was just, that's just not what you did. Now, he had an old house that he put together, uh, and he built it himself, and the bathroom was on the top floor. And my elderly grandmother Middle of the night, had to kind of, you know, hike up that thing. And, you know, uh, I think at some point they had a chamber pot. I'm thinking, Grandpa, you got so much money in the bank. Build her a bathroom. You know, I'm going to do it. I remember my dad, who my dad does not spend money. <laughs> Just letting you know. Actually, he started to reevaluate his practices. And say, do I really need to, look how much my grandfather saved. And he could have put a bathroom in for Grandma. And I know my mom has benefited from some choices and some reevaluation that my dad has made. And Vicki, you, you know, maybe a little bit. No, no. She's like, we're working on it. Right? I think she's working on it. So, will I be a little less tight-fisted than my dad? Is my dad being less tight-fisted than my grandfather? We need to evaluate some of those influences. It's good to save money, but maybe not too good to save so much that you're not having your spouse get all that she probably should have deserves, right? Okay. There's some things going on there. We need to reevaluate. Number three, don't miss this. Every one of us needs a Savior. It doesn't matter if you're that righteous grandson, righteous granddaughter that has evaluated and you're making good choices with your life. The truth of the matter is, none of us has been perfect in our lives. And we have a God who calls for holiness. Look at how it says in Ezekiel, it says, The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Now, many of us want to be very quick to say, Well, you know, I think I'm in the righteous category, right? I'm, I'm okay. The scripture is clear. 
For all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have failed the exam. All of us have not been perfect. All of us have done something. You know, in this last test, I just told you that I got complaints about. I did have one perfect paper. I mean, I had one person that got all the points, including the bonus. One, only one out of out of nine, 105 students. I got I had one that did right. Wouldn't it be awesome for the rest of them? They're like, could he just be kind of our team leader? Could he just be the guy? Could we just get his grade? Like he could be like the class representative. Okay, you get to nominate one person to take the test. Let's nominate one guy. Could it be him? It would, you, you, hopefully you pick him. Don't pick the most popular person. Pick that guy because that guy got them all right. He's the only. Could his score count for everyone? Friends, brothers, sisters, that's the good news of Jesus. That's the good news of Jesus. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin, the one who had the perfect score, the only one who has been sinless, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. In theology, it's called imputed righteousness. It's the idea that his score on the exam, the perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, his score gets applied to your life and all of our sins got applied to him and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for those sins and rose again. Wow. That is a just God who is merciful. That is a loving God who also made sure that sin could not enter his presence. That is a God who made a way where there was no way. That is a God who loves you so much that he would take your sin and put it on Jesus and put his righteousness on you if you will accept him as your Savior. Well, lastly, every one of us needs a new life. We all need a change. That's God's desire. Salvation is not just about forgiveness and eternity. It's definitely about that. But it's also about right now living with God, knowing God. And he shows us this and hints at it in Ezekiel when he says, but if a wicked person turns away from the sins they've committed and keeps all of my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses that they've committed will be remembered against them, but the righteous things they've done, and they will live. The wicked person can turn. The wicked person can choose the new life. Jesus has paid the price. He's paid the penalty. And now we can become these people that enjoy the new life in Christ. But there's a warning. Those of us who even have forgiveness, who have Jesus in our lives, We can turn back to sin. Now in Ezekiel, it doesn't have the full revelation that Jesus Christ paid it all, but it is a warning to us, as it says in verse 24, but a righteous person, if one, a righteous person, turns from their righteousness and commits the sin uh, and does the detestable things that the wicked person does, will they live? No, none of the righteous things that that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness, uh, they are guilty. And because of the sins they have committed, they will die. 
this warning in the Old Testament can be reflected in the New. You see, as New Testament believers, we know that we have forgiveness and we are free. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free from the power of sin. But we're not free from the presence of sin. We are not free from those temptations. Some of that because it's passed down by culture or passed down by, by, by family. And, but most of all, because it's present with inside each of us. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, says, Abstain from those evil desires. They're your desires. Abstain from the evil desires which war against your soul. We all have these things that are pulling against us. And in fact, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul uses baptism as the expression. Look what he says in Romans chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning that grace might increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know, verse 3 says, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. You saw that with Nathan this morning, right? Now, it actually happens when you make a decision to follow Jesus. Baptism is just a symbol of it. But it's a symbol that's supposed to be very, very clear. A symbol that says, look, You died, and we buried you. Not under dirt, because that would be very problematic. But under water, to show that the old life is supposed to be done. It's dead. Dead people don't do stuff anymore. The old life is gone. And raised, just as Christ was raised uh, with Christ. It says, verse 4, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, uh, through the glory of the Father, we too might live what? A new life. A new life. Brothers and sisters, we are so tempted to go back and live and just all rest in the grace of Jesus. We can absolutely rest in the grace of Jesus. His sacrifice is complete. His, it is fulfilled every uh, penalty that our sins have in, 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 in incurred. Jesus has done it all. We rest in that grace. And yet, we fight. We fight against the temptations from the world and in our flesh. We fight against those things because they are not pleasing to the Lord. We don't want to turn back to the things that He has brought us out of. Why would we go back to the old ways? Why would we fall back into those generational sins? It's time to break free. If there are patterns of behavior that you've inherited from culture or family, Let's reevaluate. The things that are negative need to go out. You've got a new life in Jesus Christ. The things that are good and good for you, absolutely continue to follow and follow the models that you have that are good. But in all of these things, let us live out the new life that Jesus purchased for us. It's your right. It's your privilege. And let me tell you, it's your destiny. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He will finish that work in you. This morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, maybe right now you just want to say, yes, Lord. Maybe you would just want to forgive me, come into my life. He's promised to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today, if you don't know Jesus, choose Jesus. Today, if you need to pray about something else or, or, or you have a question about following Jesus or you've made that decision today, I'll be at the front. You come. You come. Don't wait. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for the gift that is in your Son, Jesus. We know that he loves us and that you have broken every curse by becoming the curse for us on the tree, on the cross. So we pray this with confidence in your love. In the name of Jesus. Amen.